Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. You can support this podcast at Patreon.com slash Partners in Crime Media. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoie and Taylor Quimby, and these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Law and order, law and order, law and order. It's no ordinary police procedural, baby. It's the FNOG of police procedures, baby. Law and order, law and order, law and order, law and order. These are their stories, these are their stories. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or Original Recipe. Today, we're looking at SVU Season 8, Episode 9, Choreographed. Joining me to do just that is true crime author and host of the podcast Crime Writers On, Rebecca Lavoy. Hello, Rebecca. Good evening, Kevin. How are you doing? I'm um, uh, leaving you with an edit that you have to create right there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing well, and I'm doing well because of our special guest. He is the senior producer from the Outside In podcast, Taylor Quimby. That's Taylor. Me. Hey, how you doing? Our listeners already know you. They do. And why is that? Well, I created the theme song that is so very divisive. <laughs> you are Uncanny Valleys. I am. Or is I, it Uncanny Valleys? Uh, oh, and are you talking about the emphasis on the yeah. syllable? Uh, yeah. Uncanny Valleys. I just say Uncanny Valleys. Yeah. You know, I actually have very rarely said the word Uncanny Valleys. It's one of those sorts of weird internet projects that you almost never admit to. Yeah. But we <laughs> You're love... out. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, your the theme song is like a total earworm. And Rebecca, would you say it's like a Beyonce song? That... I say it's an acquired taste. When you first hear it, you don't get it. And then two days later, you can't stop singing it. It is basically like the earwormiest podcast theme song that's ever been created. I mean, think about it. The first time you heard Single Ladies by Beyonce, you were like, I don't get it, yeah, right? Isn't it all the same chord? <laughs> and our theme song is very much the same way. Our listeners, most of them say they hate it, and then they say they love it. I'll be honest. I, I would not have compared my song to Beyonce, but uh, I'll, I'll take that as a compliment. I mean, I, I sort of love the cheesy theme songs that exist in podcast world, especially because I also work in public radio and public radio theme songs tend to avoid the cheese. Uh, so I don't know if you've ever heard uh, Savage Lovecast. Yeah. I love oh, yeah. their yes. theme song. Like that's one of the ones that I I love just how straightforwardly cheesy it is. And it just, literal. Yeah. Yeah. It's got the jingle quality. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, you know, the instruction, I think it was the only instruction we gave you was we wanted it to match the attitude of this show, which is not going to be over serious and analytical and fun. And I think you did that. So yeah. thank you for making this a very distinctive podcast because of your musical imaging. Well, you can thank my microcorg because that pretty much is what did all the work. <laughs> <laughs> but people want to know what that lyric in the middle is. You think you know who, well, gosh, how does it go? It's been a long time. Everybody uh, knows. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Law and order. Law and, law and order. order. Yeah. Law and order. 
It's no ordinary oh, that's it. police yeah. procedural baby. It's the effing OG of police procedurals. Baby. And a lot of people think effigy yeah. is what one of the tweets or that we got Or epitome. About it. We hear that a lot. Yeah. And then people go, what is OG? And then I realize how very, very white our audience wow. is. <laughs> there are people who don't know the phrase OG. Yeah, you know, not everybody is cool, Taylor, like you are. I mean, to they're be honest with you, they're not all original like, gangsters. They're not all that, <laughs> which no. is OG and effing. And, and I think this was the only change we made is in the first version. It wasn't effing. It was fucking. It was yeah. a fucking OG of, <laughs> and I loved it. But I thought maybe not for the first ten <laughs> seconds of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did go full Monty there, <laughs> that, but that was great. Yeah, it was like you, you go too far, we'll pull you back. But it, but thank you so much because it really is. It is great, and people do love it. Oh, uh, it, was, it was a blast to make. It was so much fun. And uh, you also get to sometimes do a little musical imaging for your other podcast, your real podcast, Outside In. Mm-hmm. I would think that it's great to use all the tools in your creative toolbox when you have a, a job like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's a special treat because I do love working on the podcast, but, you know, it's a whole different set of skills when you're talking about, you know, doing stories or just booking and talking to guests and emailing. You know, there's all that stuff that you have to do at any job. And it's really nice that occasionally I get to come into a studio with my guitar and whatever else and just you know, goof off for a couple hours and then see what I come out with afterwards. And you were named, what, best podcast by Outside Magazine? That's right. And And Runner's World. And Runner's World, yeah. So congratulations. Well, thank you very much. You must be doing something right. I hope so. I think, you know, we're we're doing the podcast thing. Everybody's doing it. (laughs) All the cool kids. Yeah, all the cool kids. Some of them are actually doing it in radio stations and not in a closet in their basement like we are. Some people have some resources. <laughs> yeah, we, some people can give out tote bags. We can just give out little copies of our outtakes. We can, you can to raise Instagram money. photos of tote bags. You could just watch your breath condense on the ceiling. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> of all the franchises, do you have a favorite Law and Order team? Favorite Law and Order detective team. Uh, no, I I can't even I because I did this jingle for you guys. I can't even answer my. You own knew jingle. it was coming. Yeah, you knew it was coming. I did, and I considered making something up and pretending that I knew more about it than I than I do. But but this is one of those moments where your listeners are going to have to call me a fraud because it's it's kind of true. <laughs> I think I think it's better to be open about it than to pretend and uh, you know just say some team that you know is popular. Let so- me say this. Uh, I love the dude from Jurassic Park who was the geneticist. B.D. Wong, yeah. B.D. Wong. He's not a detective, he's a psychiatrist. Okay, uh, so he he may not be part of a team, but I'm a big fan of that actor in Jurassic Park, so I will (laughs) name him as my favorite detective I thought he was going to go with Vincent D'Onofrio in Jurassic World. I thought he was going to go with Jeff Goldblum, who was on Criminal Intent. Intent. Yeah, you were pretty close there. You were pretty close. All right, so even though I'm guessing that you don't have a favorite prosecutorial team, I'm going to make you suffer by listening to yourself sing it. Favorite law and order district attorney prosecutorial team. (laughs) Favorite law and order district attorney prosecutorial team. Yeah, (laughs) there it is. So no, do you have an answer? Nope. Um, All right, hold on, hold on. Um, Okay, so I've been watching uh, Mozart in the Jungle. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of this show? On Amazon? On Amazon Prime, and it's uh, about this sort of young, up-and-coming, chaotic conductor. And the woman who was the defense attorney in this episode that we're going to talk about is in that show. I like her. So she is my favorite. Bernadette Peters? Bernadette Peters. Ah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. And again, I know Broadway it doesn't, legend, it doesn't Peters. actually apply 
Yes. But I, she's my answer. She was a good defender in this uh, episode. She was icy. I liked it. She was cold as ice. She was. She yes. has a funny voice, too. Just... She has a high vibrato voice. I wouldn't say it's funny, Kevin. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I, I wasn't it's good saying didn't she didn't say shrill. I, yeah, I wasn't saying she had vocal fry and started all that noise again. <laughs> all right, so let's look at the first half of this episode. Season 8, episode 9, Choreographed. We start in the bushes of Central Park where a teenage couple is playing, how about just a tip? (laughs) (laughs) That's when a barking dog leads them to a woman gasping her last breath. She's a fashion model named Danielle, and the early diagnosis was that she was scared into having a fatal heart attack. Elliot, fresh off his fling with his temporary partner, Danny Beck, is reunited with previously reassigned Olivia, and it's awkward. It's awesome. So why couldn't Danny cut it? Couldn't deal with the victims. But you liked working with her. She didn't have to handle me. How'd you like working alone? I didn't. (laughs) Elliot tracks a homeless witness who can't talk, leading him (laughs) into the weirdest game of Pictionary ever on network television. (laughs) And that leads him to a guy who had his arm broken by the victim's husband, Wesley. He's a choreographer for a dance troupe. Elliot and Olivia check with his friends Glenn and Naomi. Tech geek Glenn reveals that Wesley was having an affair with one of his dancers. Meantime, Warner determines Danielle was poisoned with dialdrin. When the detectives search Wesley's home, they find a hidden vial of dialdrin and learn that Wesley's secret lover is actually Naomi. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Now, I just want to point out in the very first scene yeah. that this dog comes through the bushes and the girl literally says, what is it, boy? Are <laughs> <laughs> oh, you looking for Timmy? I know. It was funny about that young couple because it was like the fake out because you think that they're going to be the Vicks because, yeah. you know, it was sexy times in the park and uh-huh. there have been a lot of sexy times in the park opens to the show. The first of about 100 red herrings on this show. Yeah. Well, and, and especially because the way that the shot is set up, it, it shows a pair of lips kissing a cheek. Or something. Yeah, and, and it's sort of like an unmoving cheek. And very it's, Dexter, it's, right? Yeah. It's only about two seconds, but it's it's very uncomfortable. Teen sex is always uncomfortable. Here's a barking dog. Grab the leash and follow it. <laughs> <laughs> because right, wouldn't the dog attack somebody instead of like running for help? Yeah. You know, it was funny because the barking dog interrupting the sex, the dog didn't seem friendly enough to want to grab its leash and go anywhere with it, right? <laughs> yeah. It they, was like Kuja popping out of the woods. It should have been yeah. smaller, like maybe an Australian shepherd. Yeah. I think maybe they had the breed wrong. It didn't seem like a model's dog, that's for sure. And if you're going to do the lassie thing, just get a collie. Just like <laughs> yeah, get right. a collie. <laughs> go full collie. <laughs> Don't go half collie. Go full collie. So Elliot's homeless witness is a man who had been an attorney... <laughs> Who had a stroke and lost his speech and then lost everything else. Very sad. And they spent an hour with the dry erase board trying to get a description of Danielle's assailant. Rebecca, how would you rate the effectiveness of this detective technique? Well, um, I rank it Frankenstein, Tonto, and Tarzan, for one. <laughs> uh, number two, if this man, who now can't speak or gesture with more than just, you know, a lot of yelling... Uh, was an attorney, wouldn't you imagine he could type? Just saying. (laughs) Wouldn't you imagine he could maybe grasp a pen or a crayon, even in his mouth, and just, like, write some letters down? This idea that he has to draw and grunt 
It was one of the more absurd and totally awesome interrogation scenes I have ever seen on this show. I love that part of this episode. I love it. Because you don't want to laugh because it's like a person with a disability, but it's hilarious at the same time. The thing that got me a little bit, because these these are the sorts of scenes where you go into disbelief mode a little bit, right? And, mm. and I was watching this and think, you know, he made a good show of almost stabbing Elliot in the scene before this. Uh-huh. And I was like, he he held the knife, he had a good stabbing motion, and <laughs> you then even I and then... hear they go <laughs> <laughs> Good Foley. Yeah. Uh, but you know, in the following scene, yeah, I mean he's really struggling to to hold the marker. And so that that's where it fell short a little bit for me there. It yeah. is always fun though when Elliot has to go into like a tunnel or a homeless camp. And, like, just start turning over random homeless people, just, like, flashlight in the face, like, being super cop underground. That, that was fun, too. That's where most sex crime investigations go. <laughs> exactly. It's the, uh, <laughs> the Bowery. Before we move on, I just also want to point out, because I, I don't know if you noticed this, but when they put out the date when he went into the homeless camp, it was October 31st. It was Halloween. And mm-hmm. I was just kind of sad. Doesn't he have a kid? I mean, what was he doing? Like, <laughs> yeah. Halloween Many night. Kids. Why do you think Dickie's getting in so much trouble? <laughs> Daddy's not coming home for Halloween. So there is, you know, if you look at this episode all by itself, you do miss out on a lot of context, which is right now, Elliot and his wife are separated. And the previous couple of episodes, Elliot had been with a new partner because in real life, Mariska Hargate went on maternity leave. Yep, on the show, she was lent to the FBI. Right, she went undercover. <laughs> so he gets reassigned with a female detective, and her name is Danny Beck. Beck. Yep. Now, one of the things that keeps happening when Elliot keeps referring to the victim, Danielle, he keeps slipping in with Danny. Right. Now, the episode right before this, Olivia comes back to the squad room and gets a glance of Elliot and Danny being touchy feely, and she just knew. That they had gotten together, yep. which they kind of had. They macked. I think Olivia and perhaps Elliot, too, when they finally get together, realize that they've missed their chance. Now, Taylor, can you think of any television show that got better when the male and the female lead got together? Bones? It got better? Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I, I like I can think of so that... many that didn't. Uh, the uh, Office? Yes. I'd say The Office got better when Jim and Pam got together. Yeah. yeah. Well, That's about the only one I could think of. I mean, I think like Cheers got worse and the Moonlighting got worse and the X-Files got worse. Right. But it's, Wait, I, it hold is on, hard. Hold on, hold on, hold on. They got together in the X-Files? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Someone oh really doesn't ha- hasn't had cable for a really long time. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> a baby and everything. Mulder and Scully? Yeah. What were they thinking? <laughs> I think they were thinking about getting it in. <laughs> wow. Okay. All right. Uh, all right. I got to catch up on that one. At this time, they've been together on the show for eight years. There's a lot of relationship people that want them to get together. Rebecca, what do you think? Was this like, okay, folks watching the TV show, they had their chance. It's not going to happen. It's a conscious decision the show made from the beginning to never have them get together. And I think if you watch the show, it's clear that it's not going to happen. There are not the close calls there are are about intimacy. They're not about sex. It's not like um, if there was one episode where Elliot was undercover and Mariska went to talk to him and then they almost got caught. So she had to undress and like pretend to be a prostitute. Even that. I mean, it was almost like a sort of like brother, sister, weird intimacy thing. It's more about their closeness than it is about their heat. And the show was very smart to keep them apart. It really was. I don't think the show was smart to have him Mac on Danny. Like, uh, I think that was a little weird and you know they sort of unexplained that she's Danish and she's a cop and so like there's a lot going on with Danny that was just like a little bit of an interruption in the flow but um 
Yeah, it was smart not to put them together. Did hmm. you get all of this, Taylor, from this one episode? I, I did not. Actually, I was wondering I was wondering because I, I picked up on the, the fact that he kept calling the victim Danny and that other people kept correcting him. So I, I could tell that there was some sort of backstory there. I'm going to need a recent photo of Danny. Danny? I'm the only one who called her that. I'm sorry. Danielle. I wonder what Danny would have said. Danny. The victim. Danielle. That's why I just said that. And I thought maybe it was going to turn out later that he knew her. He knew the model that was killed and, and was lying about it. But that's just because I haven't watched enough SVU. That would, be, that would have been a great twist. Yeah. They, no. could, have, they could have squeezed it in. I mean, there was only like 20 more. I, not that there weren't enough twists in this, in this episode, especially in the second half. This is a whiplash episode of twists. It does. It's yeah. one of the twistiest episodes I've ever seen, and I love it. Now, we do have uh, multiple celebrities. It's our very special guest star... Bob Saget and Catherine Bell. Yay! That's right. Yay! Yeah, big time special guest stars. Yeah. Now we'll get to uh, we'll get back to Bernadette Peters, but uh, talk about a mismatched couple here. Uh, <laughs> we have Danny Tanner himself as Geeky Glenn. That's a neat trick. I built a system for keyless entry. I keep an RFID chip in my wallet. So in addition to Full totally House believable. and yep. Fuller House, mm-hmm. yeah, Bob Saget was, of course, the narrator on How I Met Your Mother, and he showed us America's Funniest Home Videos long before people were recording them on their iPhones. And he's a super dirty stand-up comic. Yeah, yeah. He, yes, he, he does play very blue, as yeah. they say, yep. which is, <laughs> you would not know that. Well, you would know it if you ever saw that movie, um, What's that movie called with the, the comedian? Oh, the Aristocrats. The Aristocrats. Yeah. Crats. You would. <laughs> Not the Aristocats. That was the, the Disney version. Don't, exactly. Kids, don't, don't get those two confused. <laughs> and playing the totally out of his league professional dancer wife, Naomi, is Catherine Bell. Who are you to judge? You don't know the first thing about me. Oh, I know you've been lying to us for three days. About an affair, not a murder. Yes. And she's best known for her nine seasons as Sarah McKenzie on JAG, and then for another seven seasons on Army Wives. Catherine Bell is beautiful. Like, I don't want to sound like, I, I guess I don't sound sexist because I'm a woman saying it. but like, You would sound sexist. Yeah, she that, yeah. is too beautiful for this part in this episode. Like, at various points of the episode, she's supposed to be, like, dying, and she's, like, way too beautiful for that. She's supposed to be married to Danny Tanner, and she's, like, way too beautiful for that. <laughs> she's having the affair with the old, you know, time 80s actor choreographer. She's way too beautiful for that. Yeah. She's, like, too beautiful to be a dancer, even. She doesn't even have that, like, you know, starved sort of look that you expect to <laughs> <laughs> she's just lush and gorgeous. Her hair is shiny. I mean, well, she's a glowing, glowing woman. Well, I, th- I think that, you know, you've got to give Bob Saget a little credit here because, you know, if we if we put aside the things that we learned about him throughout the episode, <laughs> I mean, the man knows how to use an RFID chip. It's that true. is advanced in 2006. <laughs> That's pretty, yeah, he's yeah. pretty smart. He's got Free Apple iPhone. Pay 10 years before Apple Pay. Is he had a Palm Trio, like personal handheld device. <laughs> it was pretty impressive. <laughs> we obviously had a big brain so that must have been what drew her exactly. to him mm. exactly and like you said we are, we also uh, have to acknowledge Bernadette Peters as defense attorney Stella Danquist and for all of the times that Law and Order has drawn upon Broadway stars mm-hmm. because it's shot in New York this is her only appearance on any Law and Order which is funny because she walks in the squad room and talks to them as if she's done other cases with them they yeah. sort of have that familiarity you know have the repeat offender uh, defense attorneys on these shows over and over again and they sort of walk in and they, they pick up the conversation where they left it last time. This one felt that way, but this really is like her only time on the show, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's so strange. The impression that I got was that she was a regular. They all know each other. I had a question when I was watching this, which was that you guys both do the crime stuff enough and you're more soaked in the sort of law world yeah. than I am. So when when she was saying that they didn't have a case <laughs> because they had they had found this rare poison in the husband's like, trash can. Yep. And, and she said, circumstantial evidence. You got the dots, but you can't connect them. Sure I can. I've got the poison. You can't link the dieldrin to my client. It's circumstantial. Wife dead, rare poison found under husband's sink. I'll take that kind of circumstantial over three eyewitnesses any day. They, they all sort of looked like, ah, she's right. Oh, we don't have a case. I was wrong. thinking, that seems like a solid case to me. Yeah, and I'm really glad you brought that up because there is a problem with criminal procedural shows where they have made circumstantial evidence in a lexicon be like not strong evidence. And that's not true at all. Huh. All circumstantial evidence is are the things that show you committed the crime. Like, you were there. That's circumstantial evidence. Like, you had a motive. You um, went to the bank to get money right before someone handed money to the criminal. That's circumstantial. Like, physical evidence is like DNA, blood, footprints, but circumstantial... You had a very rare poison <laughs> hidden in your house that was used to kill your wife. Yeah. Completely circumstantial! Oh, we yeah. need to throw it away. Yeah, no, that was a total bullshit thing that is way more than anybody would typically need to prosecute a case, and uh, he he did a really good job framing up that dude with the computer records and all that. It was He was a good frame up, more than enough than any prosecutor would need. And yes, you can be tried and convicted on circumstantial evidence alone. It happens all the time. Okay, good so, to know. We do have a Hey, It's That Guy. Hey, it's that guy. Can you name the actor who played Wesley Masoner? I can, I can, I can, I can. You can what's his name? His name is Chris Sarandon. He is best known for playing Prince Humperdinck in The Princess Bride. <laughs> I went with her unless I was rehearsing. You're an actor? No. I run a dance company called Radialis. I'm the artistic director and choreographer. <laughs> but he is in many, 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 many in 80s, 90s, and aughts uh, TV show, film. He is a classic, hey, it's that guy guy. I almost saw it that whole time and the little bit of dancer scruff is what threw me off his scent. Please consider me as an alternative to suicide. (laughs) When you support us at Patreon at just $5, you will get exclusive content like the Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club, Laura's Rage Walk, the Crime Writers on After Show, and Married with Podcast with Rebecca and me. Start getting your exclusive perks for just $5. Join our own elite squad at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. That's patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Let's take a look at the second half of the episode. Benson and Stabler grill Wesley and Naomi, but can't put them at the scene of Danielle's death. Homeland Security finds records that Wesley bought Dialdrin on the black market, but he claims his credit card was stolen. Glenn comes to the police station where he confronts Naomi about her affair. And after he storms out, she faints just as gracefully and perfectly timed as a professional dancer would. (laughs) Beautiful faint. Poisoned. No. She became septic due to an infection from a dirty needle. I excised this from her shoulder. I don't know what it is. Uh, That's an RFID chip, and I think we know who put it there. Naomi doesn't. I asked her. So whoever did this to her must have injected it while she was unconscious. Might take a way of keeping tabs on your cheating wife. 
seems Geeky Glenn inserted the chip to keep tabs on her comings and goings, or as in Stabler's words, I invented a hojack. He created a hojack. <laughs> <laughs> Trademark Stabler. <laughs> when Glenn tells his wife in the hospital about why he put the microchip in, Naomi goes into a code blue. Just as graceful and perfectly timed as a professional dancer would. <laughs> While she's rushed to surgery, Glenn confesses to poisoning Danielle. Wesley confronts Glenn in the hallway, and they get into a fist fight. And for a nerd with glasses and in handcuffs, that guy can still throw a punch. <laughs> He's now, tall, too. Yeah. He's a tall man. Naomi is on death's door because, due to a briefly mentioned pre-existing condition, her liver has failed. And the only person... The only person <laughs> who's a partial transplant match is, surprise... Her husband, Glenn. Glenn! <laughs> Thanks, Obama! <laughs> well, the operation is a success. Glenn is wheeled off to jail, satisfied knowing that his love will survive. Okay. I'm, I wonder if they asked the homeless guy if, if he wasn't willing to maybe donate half his liver. He did, but he responded sounding like the town drunk from Blazing Saddles. <laughs> mm. Mm. Oh, I'm he in- says the sheriff is near! I'm impressed at how many of the plot twists you covered in that summary, and yet you sort of skipped like a whole one. Which one? The one about how they had to go to the Department of Corrections to convince the guy to let Glenn out of jail to do the transplant and it was like the dude from The Wire and that was a super, maybe it's not going to happen twist. I don't have the manpower and I don't have the bucks. Look, we will take full responsibility for transporting him and guarding him. I allow this tomorrow. I'm drowning in requests from every prisoner in the system to be let out so they can donate their organs. This episode had the most twists and turns. It was like at the whiplash of, of TV episodes. They're able to find uh, a rare poison in a microchip, you know, in the victims. But, but, whoa, there's just too much red tape here to get the rest of this done. <laughs> yeah. Do you know how many forms I'd have to fill out to let him out for a, a liver transplant? Do you know how many convicts would suddenly have sick relatives and need transplants? <laughs> I feel like he would get busted out so that, the you know, you know, maybe the, the feds can figure out this microchip technology. I mean, he's <laughs> on the forefront here. He was. Yeah. It's like, well, if it was good enough for my dog, it's, you know, <laughs> who needs an ankle bracelet when we can just uh, shoot you up? I, I'm not even going to go into sort of the whole literary allusion to the fact that she literally had a chip on her shoulder. Yeah, she did. <laughs> she did. Yeah. But it was a good opportunity to give Munch like two lines in the episode, too, you know, because of the government watching us. Big brother, you know. Oh, they definitely were saving him for that show. Exactly. <laughs> uh, we now know what Catherine Bell's role actually was uh, to faint on dramatic command. She was a very attractive fainter. She was a very attractive dyer as well. Um, she can't do anything unattractively. It's a little bit distracting, but it's TV, so we're just going to roll with it. It. But yeah, once again, I'm going to say, Catherine Bell is a pretty beautiful woman. She even pulled it off when she told Elliot at the end, tell him I love him. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow, love is just so complicated. Yeah. And when she coded and we thought she was dead, she was like, you killed Danielle. You don't understand. No, I do. You killed her to frame Wesley. And now you've killed me. too. And now you've killed me. Clunk. Cue head to the side. <laughs> Graceful eye closing peaceful death. I really hope that when I die, I'll be there for like, you know, one final... You're going to die in the toilet. Who are you kidding? (laughs) Everybody does. (laughs) I I hope my EKG makes like an interesting series of rhythms that'll be like, beep, 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 beep. (laughs) <laughs> beep, 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 beep. And people will they'll all just have their hands out. They're just sort of like waiting like, I'm actually not sure what's happening here. This is new. This is new. It's an Uncanny Valley's joint is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> Someone then, starts beatboxing. Yeah, the doctor in the room is like, or maybe a nurse with a tear down her cheek starts like, 
<laughs> just, you know, a little can't get it together, but, you know. So I have a question about uh, the second half of this episode. This is yeah. a legit question yeah. um, that I'm not sure if it was editing or writing or on purpose. So Danny Tanner goes to the squad room because they have kept Catherine Bell there overnight questioning her about her affair with uh, Prince Humperdinck, right? Yeah. So he goes there because ostensibly he's like, where's my wife? She's missing. And they're like, oh, she's here. And then there's this whole confrontation about the affair, which seems like legit, right? Mm-hmm. But he already knew. Yeah. He was being a good actor. Yeah. So was this part of his plan to set up Wesley, was to have the affair be revealed as if he didn't know about it? Was this like calculated on his part? Or was this just something that they forgot in the editing room? Like, we need to have him do the wink to the camera when he leaves. Like, Because usually on Law & Order, it's a little bit more ham-fisted. Like, you, the person telegraphs that they already knew. Well, I, I, I'm i just guessing here, but I, I would think that getting Naomi caught up in the investigation was not part of Glenn's plan. He probably thought it was just going to be clean cut. Everything points to Wesley and there's no need to bring Naomi into it. Right, right. It was pretty cold of him to kill uh, poor Danielle, though. I mean, what did she ever do? She didn't. Yeah, she didn't really get a lot of uh, screen time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. She. Well, he said uh, he took away Wesley took away Glenn's uh, love of his life. And so he took away his. Right. Well, remember when Mike Doty was on the show, one of the things he pointed out was that Danielle, the model, when they went to the apartment and there were all those photographs of her, like, that was a day on Law & Order. Like, they had to shoot all those photos, those fake modeling photos of Danielle, right? Yeah, right. She, <laughs> so she got paid something to go, like, okay, we need to pretend you're going to have two scenes. One, you're going to gasp to death, <laughs> lying in a bush. Remember, we're going to be shooting about 3 a.m., so bring a sweater. And then the rest of the time, we're going to put you in different uh, high-fashion magazines. <laughs> There's that one photo where she's like naked and all hunched over. She's a curl in the fetal position. Yes. And she's like, okay, mom, you'll get to see me on NBC Wednesday night. <laughs> oh, look, it's my cameo. <laughs> I th- do think that it's funny that Glenn, you know, the criminal genius Mr. Here, Robot? Yeah, well, he goes from bumbling nerd to when he's confronted about the microchip, he becomes Bane from the Dark Knight. <laughs> RFID is the wave of the future. I'm just ahead of the curve. 15 years, everyone will be implanted with a chip. What do I sign up to opt out of that? The backwards attitude of a typical Luddite. You're not even capable of understanding this technology. Yes, because Elliot is a Luddite, and he'll never understand the wave of the future. That is RFID technology. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's how he opens his comedy as well. He calls everybody a Luddite? Bob, No, Bob Saget just starts with the RFID chip, and he just, yeah, yeah. It's if you don't laugh, I know where you are. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There was one funny thing about that part of the episode, which was that they had the tech at the apartment who found the reader at the door, you know, that we'd seen him go in there using it Mm -hmm. as a key earlier, and the tech says uh, regarding the RFID chip that had been found in Naomi, when he pulls that reader off the door, he goes, this is only one piece of the puzzle. And then quick cut to the lab where he's like, here are all the other pieces of the puzzle. (laughs) (laughs) There was a chip reader at the dance studio. There was a chip reader at Wesley's apartment. Did he already know that when he said this is only one piece of the puzzle? And he was like, and I'll tell you the rest when you come to my little let's silent Let's silently walk back to the lab so I can finish this sentence. Nobody interrupt I'm me. I'm not even going to tell you in the car on the way over. <laughs> well, the same thing happened with the medical examiner. They're uh, interviewing somebody, and the phone rings. He's like, oh, she found the cause of death. They had to get in the car. I have something to tell you. we got to drive, find a parking space. 
But I have to tell you in person. Because Tamara Tooney is a contract actor, and they need to have her on screen for a certain amount of time. So if they don't have that conversation in person, it's just not going to work out. This is why investigations take so long. Here's a phone, but I'm not going to tell you what I I need to tell you. (laughs) This is a huge leap, but they actually use this same strategy in uh, the movie The Martian with Matt Damon. I was thinking about this recently, because there's a section where he's narrating, he's he's doing a voiceover while he's, if you, I don't know if you've seen this, course, but yeah, yeah. he's by himself on Mars, so you have to have some sort of device to have this character speak out loud. Right. So there's Exposition. A, exactly. So he's got a voiceover, it's sort of explaining what he's doing, but then it'll cut and he'll he'll be talking to himself and it, and it goes perfectly with the voiceover and it goes back and forth and it's taking a time over, you know, a period of hours or days. Right. And it, and it has this effect of being seamless so that it seems as though it's sort of one scene to the listener or to the viewer. But yeah, actually, it makes no sense in terms of actual narrative structure. Yeah, I mean, that was difficult because they were basically that book is written in diary format. So mm-hmm. they had to translate a diary to like action. I think another recent media thing that has a similar sort of device is La La Land, which uses songs as exposition. It goes from dialogue to song to dialogue. And the song was like part of the dialogue. It wasn't like interrupting the action. But Law and Order is just a little bit more um, jump cutty <laughs> about the whole thing. They'll just be in a whole different location when the sentence is finished. Now, I don't want to, you know, victim blame here, but if there were really only one person in the world that was a match for my organ transplant, and it's my spouse, I sure the fuck would not be cheating on that person. <laughs> That's a bad insurance policy. She wanted to dance all the leads in the upcoming seasons of dancing. Mm, yeah. Can we just... <laughs> we need to have an organ transplant, but can we just wait until next season because the Nutcracker is coming out? Yeah, I, I have to say between Danny Tanner and Prince Humperdinck, by the way, who was like a little bit past his Prince Humperdinck prime in mm-hmm. this uh, episode. His dance company, from the three seconds that I saw <laughs> of what they were doing on stage, needs a lot of work. And you studied modern dance in college, so I, you would know. I did. I thought they were doing the, um, God, what's the thing? It was this dance move, walk like an Egyptian. I mean, it was like, it was <laughs> and he was uh, yelling homecoming at them. parade level of dance moves. Yeah, and he was yelling at them like the choreographer from Chorus Line. Like, Stop! Awful, terrible crap, Erica. Go back to Baltimore, where nobody cares if you're two pounds behind and 20 pounds overweight. He took himself so seriously. Go back to Baltimore. He was like the douchebag choreographer stereotype like you read about. I'm not sure she was trading up with that affair, dance leads or not. But yeah, I mean, Danny Tanner's, you know, smothering weirdness. Although we didn't really see it. I mean, he did plant the chip in her when she was sleeping, at least. It's not like he was, you know telling her that he right. you say that like it's better <laughs> you say that like sleeping is i mean i, I don't know how he would do it while know? she was awake <laughs> right yeah he, again he's a super genius but he doesn't know how to sterilize the needle right by the way how how large does that needle have to be <laughs> to put i know the chip is small like the size of a piece of rice but it's still like a turkey baster one of those flavor injectors that yeah you, it would have to be a big needle right well, so he probably had to anesthetize her and... well, I, I i put something in your tea but I didn't think to put the needle in the boiling water as well. Yes. Even though it was right there. <laughs> it must have it must have hurt less than a flu shot because I would definitely notice. You know, you get a sore oh, yeah. arm. I mean, oh, the, the next, next day, day she might have been like, gosh, what is going on? If I have an itchy leg in the middle of the night, I wake up. You yeah. know? <laughs> Tea would, or not. It would have been funny if he left the Band-Aid with a little piece of gauze underneath. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing that sort of stretched credibility is that when they got him 
on the ropes and he was about to confess or they thought they could get a confession from him and they said, we'll let you see your wife after you tell us what you know. <laughs> and then he's like, no, let me see her now and then I'll tell you everything. And they're like, all right, no problem. And they actually Field do. trip. <laughs> and what if like after he came out of the hospital room, he's like, yeah, forget it. I changed my mind. I'm not going to tell you anything. It wasn't exactly a great interrogation technique the two of them were doing there. I guess that was part of Olivia's reign in Stabler Inn, right? I did like where it was kind of like, well, she's about to die, so it's either assault or murder. Depends on how fast you talk. <laughs> so there is actually a very a classic scene at the end of this episode. And after all this Simmering hostility between them, Benson and Stabler get into the elevator. You know, we've been partners all these years. I don't even know your blood type. A positive. How about that? Me too. And he says to her, I'd give you a kidney. I'd give you a kidney. And she says, Not if I gave you mine first. Hmm. And An ethics question. An ethics question. First of all, can I accept that kidney? Can we swap kidneys? <laughs> but I, th- I think that this is th- sort of the signal that, okay, Elliot has had his fling, his romance, and it wasn't Olivia, and this is the writer saying, it's never going to be. This was a makeup scene. It was a like a friend zone, partner to partner, heart to heart. It was really nice and lovely. It was designed for the fans, I know, to sort of show that they were back. But still, Dickie's getting into fights, so Elliot's not all the way back yet, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's a whole other thing that happened in the episode that we didn't talk about, was his estranged phone calls from Dickie's school and the acting out around his divorce. So he's still kind of reeling from that. Well, maybe he should have showed up to Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he waited until after trick-or-treating. Now, says, Taylor, go. you and I have worked together for a long time. Mm-hmm. And, like, uh, for a long time, we worked, like, right next to each other. We used to work on the same show together. Yeah. And, like, we were really, really tight. And um, I'm not sure about the kidney thing, though. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> no, no. I mean, there's a part of me that, you know, I'd like to think that maybe I'd give a kidney. Uh, to someone. To, to say, yeah, in, well, in general. But I, but I, I just feel like committing <laughs> when you don't need to it seems like a big leap. Um, it, you know, it reminds Taylor, remember we were in that elevator and you talked about the kidney? Well, I'm going to have to take you up on that. <laughs> that offer's still good. <laughs> it's like, uh, when I don't know if this, this happened to anybody else, but I feel like it's a common experience. Uh, but at, at some point, I had like a, a friend, and, and this is in high school, way back when, and things got kind of close, and then there was sort of like a short period of dating, and then it became clear that like we were better off as friends, but we made that like weird... If in 20 or 30 years, <laughs> neither of us are married, <laughs> we'll get back together sort of thing. How'd that work out? Uh, well, um, clock's ticking. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it feels like a long time ago now. But that's that's the impression that I, that I sort of got from that elevator scene. So after the uh, surgery, and now Catherine Bell's character, Naomi, is free to date Wesley... Wesley's nowhere to be found. He does the fadeaway. Classic the ghosting. Fadeaway. Kind of makes you wonder why he was in the hospital earlier to get into the fight with Bob Saget. Does it not? He just wanted to take a swing at a guy in glasses. I think he wanted to take a swing at a guy in glasses. He certainly did not want to uh, visit his girlfriend because, by the way, he is now free as well. <laughs> so you would bring flowers, though, right? Um, to the hospital? To the hospital to visit your lover who just had an organ transplant. Even if you were playing you know, a ghost Or something. You'd bring a card. God, would I? I don't know. I mean, Taylor's weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know that I'd bring flowers. I, I don't feel confident about flowers. How about an were... edible arrangement? Oh God, no. <laughs> what if oh. you were a choreographer? What edible would you arrangements? Like ten percent of the fruit is worth eating. It's it's like when you get a fruit salad Too at a diner, cantaloupe. and it's just yeah, it's just a bunch of melon. Yeah. Although the more expensive edible arrangements are not like you know those tiers of edible arrangements are not all the same. 
Oh, well, I guess you I've got only some cheap ass edible months. arrangements. Yeah. You know, it'd be really cruel after she had a, a liver transplant to be bring her a whole bunch of grapefruit. That's right. Why is that, Kevin? Because uh, it, it counteracts re- the yeah. anti-rejection drugs. Yeah, That's right. It promotes rejection of wow, the organ. Wow, this is like a medical. It's turning into a medical advice show. Well, maybe that that would have been a good plan. You know, it's like you, you poisoned my wife in this way. I'm going to serve her a greyhound. Of, yeah, <laughs> serve her a greyhound. <laughs> so, yeah, we have the, uh, the organ transplant, and then the last we see of Bob Saget, he's getting wheeled off. I was just really hoping that they'd wheel him off, and then you hear him say, and that's how I met your mother. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's take a look at the real-life story that inspired this episode. It's time for Sing It, Taylor. But you don't know. from the headlines. (laughs) Like, that's it. You think you know who did it. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. You don't know who did it. Rip from the Although not based on any actual crime, this episode loosely takes some inspiration from the story of a couple who had RFID chips implanted in their bodies. In 2005, Amal Grofstra had a friend who was a surgeon implant the rice-sized device in his hand, becoming the first known person to independently have such a chip implanted. As the owner of a mobile technology company, Grofstra envisioned many practical uses for this device. He used his RFID chip to open his front door, to get into his computer, and to unlock his car. He even wrote a book outlining different ways the technology could be used around the house. After seeing how useful it was, his girlfriend, Jennifer Tomblin, also got an implant. Their unusual relationship was profiled in the New York Times. It's unclear if the couple is still together, but the controversy continues as certain high-tech companies have made employees get chip implants as an industrial security measure. Shut up. No. What? What? Obviously not public radio. No, 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 no. Now you could. Some people you could just use. You know the key card in your wallet. But yeah, there are like some like you know really high end black water type. Is that the stuff. end of that? Yeah, that's crazy. Because I was thinking this whole time that like you know remember the Zoom like MP3 player mm-hmm. and remember like the first like cell phone that was like that giant like brick. There's always some early iteration of some shit that doesn't work out, and then later someone makes the better one. Like the iPhone is this RFID thing, right? The find my it's like everyone has their iPhone on them right now, and you just put like a bug on someone's iPhone or track my iPhone or whatever and you could find out exactly where your husband or wife or kids are or whatever and this was the early iteration of that the pre-iPhone iteration right? Yeah. yeah. So you're telling me that someone is still using those fucking RFID chips to like track people? so, So it is the same thing. I think this is a case in which actually the technology hasn't changed all that much. It's a matter of Security and encryption and that kind of thing. I mean, I'm I'm sort of talking out of my ass here, but that's what the show's no, all you're about, not. Taylor. <laughs> you're not. I mean, other than the fact that it was a chip that's implanted in your body. Munch goes on this Big Brother conspiracy rant about Big Brother watching, and ten years later, he is right because we have devices on ourselves that aren't implanted in our bodies, but they keep track of where we've been and who we've been in touch with, and they can be used by our loved ones against us. Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. These days, all you need is you're like, find my iPhone. I mean, you if you if you want to talk about controlling crazy town spouses, I mean. I think I think there's a lot more avenues to be a creep. What then, like secretly performing surgery on them in the middle of the night? Yeah, I don't I don't think you would need a giant <laughs> syringe anymore. Yeah, you just put a little uh, app on her iPhone and know exactly where she was all the time. Yeah, no, I'm amazed by the corporate angle. That's really interesting, actually. So, Rebecca, does this mean we're not going to get matching microchips? <laughs> 
I would get a matching microchip with you if you would agree in writing to give me a kidney if I needed one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You should do this whole thing in the elevator, by the way. That's right. (laughs) Well, that's going to do it for us. I want to thank our very special guest, Taylor Quimby. Taylor, where can our listeners follow you? Um, You can follow me on Twitter at TaylorQuimby1. And I also have a SoundCloud, but there's not a lot going on there. So it's SoundCloud.com slash Taylor-Quimby. And there's there's other and frankly I have music all over the internet that you, you you're better off not hearing. Is so. it implanted with an RFID chip so we can find it? I no, thank goodness. <laughs> well, I hope our theme song's on there too. People want to make it their ringtone. You could make at least fifty seven cents, I think, if you did that. <laughs> Rebecca, how can our listeners follow you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Reb Lavoy. And you can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet to us at Law and Order Pod. Our newsreader was Cy Freighter. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny, Uncanny Valleys <laughs> and Taylor Quimby. Line editing by Henry Lavoy. Content assistance from Travis Roy. If you enjoyed this podcast, and leave a review on iTunes. It helps others discover this program just like you did. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with U.S. Copyrights Act fair use exemption for criticism and commentary. Special thanks to the elite squad of the Law & Order Wiki community for preserving the evidence. If you want to know what episodes we'll be talking about in upcoming shows, go to lawandorderpodcast.com. These Are Their Stories was recorded in Square Egg Studio and is a production of Partners in Crime Media. Partners in Crime Media.